Uh, let me make a few introductory remarks before we kind of dive in. Um, I mentioned to you last week that I wanted us in at least these first weeks to uh, consider ourselves in more of a Sunday school class setting than a sermon setting and that you would be uh, free, feel, should feel free to ask questions or make comments or raise your hand or uh, because the point, especially in these under introductory weeks, is for us to understand uh, the subject that we're talking about. So we're going to be in a little bit different format. Now, last week I realized that I was not going to get through my notes and my tendency is to put the pedal to the metal and start going faster. And, uh, and I didn't ask for questions or anything at the end, but I am sincerely telling you that at any time, if you have a question, uh, that would be a great time to uh, stop and ask it. Raise your hand or uh, speak up, and you won't bother me in the least if you do that. And if you ask a question that I can't answer, which is entirely probable, uh, then we'll just try to find the answer by next weekend. We'll bring it back up and try to answer your question if there's a question that we can't answer. And that won't bother me either if you ask a question that I can't answer. What we uh, took up last week was to give an introduction to uh, why the book of Daniel and other apocalyptic scriptures are so difficult for us to interpret. And one of the reasons that I gave you last week is because there are historically a number of views concerning prophecy. And I, the reason I was writing these terms down was because if you're not familiar with the words, for me just to say them might not be that helpful. So let me write them up here again. These are the primary views that have been in Christ's church for uh, the many centuries. The idealist view, and we talked about this last week. I'm just going to mention them now. I'm not going to go back through them again in any detail. The idealist view uh, is the view that uh, was uh, started with origin and was uh, made very popular in Christ's church by Augustine, St. Augustine in about the 400s A.D., and, and the idealist view is basically where you look at prophecy and you say a beast means something really bad. And so uh, all I'm going to take from reading a prophecy like Daniel 7, which has these beasts in it, is that Christ's church is faced with really bad uh, things that are going to be in conflict with Christ's church. And there's not really an attempt to uh, identify um, historical figures, historical fulfillment. It's much more the idea that prophecy tells us about uh, principles and kind of in the big general picture, the kinds of things we should expect through history. The preterist view is the view that all prophecy except for Revelation 21 and 22, which is obviously about the new heavens and the new earth, was completely fulfilled in the past by the year or the year surrounding A.D. 70. And so in A.D. 70, when the Romans come in and they completely destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, the Jews are scattered, that's kind of the end 
of Israel as we've known it throughout history. Uh, it's a dramatic time in history. Uh, that, that was the end of all Bible prophecy, including the book of Revelation, is fulfilled during that, except for those last two chapters in Revelation. So the preterist view, we're not looking for something that's going to happen uh, in our future other than the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the age, and that prophecy is not particularly relevant uh, to us uh, in that sense. The historicist view is the view that things in prophecy are being fulfilled through this age that we live in now. That in Daniel's day, while he was living and in the generations following him, much prophecy was fulfilled going on into the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Much of the book, book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. Some of it is still future. Uh, it especially focus on, focuses on Rome and its, uh, and its successors, which would be what we know today as the, the nations of Europe. And it especially also focuses on the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy. So when the historicist view, uh, in that view, you would very much think that the Roman Church and the Pope is what the beasts are about, the false prophets and the Antichrist and all that kind of things. You're going to see fulfilled very much in the Roman Church as it unfolds through history. This is what, this view is what you would have thought if you had been a reformed performer, if you had been a Protestant from the time of the Protestant Reformation up to about 100 years ago, this is what you would have believed. And when you read the Westminster Confession or the 1689 Baptist Confession, you'll see that uh, paragraph in there that states that the Pope is the man of sin, he is the Antichrist, and that comes from this view, and this is what I read a list last week, and I didn't bring it with me today, but it's what people like Calvin up through Matthew Henry and, and Charles Spurgeon believe that view. The futurist view says that not anything has been fulfilled in prophecy, that when we look at Daniel and we see all these visions of things that are going to come, when we look in Revelation and see these visions of things that are going to come, that still waits in our future. There's going to be a future period when all of these things suddenly come on the world scene. And that, and that when we look at prophecy, we expect to see almost all of it fulfilled uh, in the future. So from our perspective, even today, uh, most of Daniel or much of Daniel and all of Revelation or uh, Revelation chapter 4 through the end is all future yet to us, uh, even in this day. So that's what we talked about uh, last week. Now, Pastor Justin and I were talking a little bit. I asked the question last time, how many of you uh, grew up uh, being taught dispensationalism? And about half of you a little more raised your hand. I saw some perplexed faces about maybe I'm not sure what that means. And uh, we, Pastor Justin and I were talking about uh, after the service last week a little bit that uh, maybe uh, we should spend a little time talking about dispensationalism because it is something that in the last hundred years has roared onto the prophetic scene. And, uh, and it, especially among evangelicals in the United States, it has become a very popular view of the interpretation of the scriptures and uh, prophecy. And so 
Uh, we thought it would be a good idea to take just a few, a few minutes to explain a little bit about dispensationalism and to also explain to you why we are not dispensationalists. We would never, ever ask you to believe something because that's what we said. We should always have a Berean spirit. Uh, we should always uh, test everything under the light of sc and scrutiny of the scriptures. And so it, we, we should be able to explain why we're not uh, dispensationalists and, and for you to understand why that is not uh, what we hold when we interpret prophecy and when we preach uh, from portions of scripture like Daniel 7 through 12. And so I would like to spend some time talking about that tonight and if we don't finish we'll finish it up maybe next time but I would like to explain that so that you would understand uh, where we were coming from now I like most of you grew up um, not only being taught dispensationalism but I never knew really that there were other views and the, the, the few comments that I ever heard about other views is that they were from people who just didn't believe the Bible. And so they could be dismissed out of hand. And so that was where I came from. Is that many of you probably have had that experience? And so that was, that was the setting in which I grew up. And that's what I thought for many, many years. Let me mention one issue that should, we should just mention when we talk about prophecy, interpreting prophecy. And that is the issue of date setting. Now, it is true that most current date setters are dispensationalists. Um, to be fair, all dispensationalists are not date setters. And all dispensationalists are not interested in that kind of thing. And so I would be painting a false picture or two or be painting with too uh, broad a brush to, to give that impression. So I don't want to give that impression. But when people are date setters uh, in our day and we hear about these things, they are probably going to be uh, dispensationalists. One thing that can be said about date setters is that none of them have ever, 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 ever been correct. The Millerites, how many of you ever ever heard about of Millerites? Now, you know about Millerites, but you don't know that you know if you, it doesn't ring a bell because Millerites are going to eventually become Seventh-day Adventists. And so if you even just drive around town, you've seen uh, churches that are Seventh-day uh, Adventist churches. William Miller taught, based on a statement in Daniel 8.14, which refers to, to 2,300 evening mornings. It's a very odd phrase there, and, and we're going to talk about that when we get to Daniel 8. 14, he interpreted those 2,300 periods of time to be 2,300 years. And so he set the date of 1844 as being the date of the second coming, the second advent. And he began a publication in, in February of 1840 called The Signs of the Times. And that, by the way, is a publication that has continued from 1840 to today, and it's published still today by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The date that was fixed was October 22, 1844. And as that day approached, some of his followers left their fields 
unharvest. Shops were closed. People quit their jobs. They paid off their debts if they had money to pay, to pay their debts. And they gave away uh, many of their possessions because the end of time was going to come on October the 22nd, 1844. And of course, what came about is now known as, quote, the Great Disappointment in capital letters. And the underlying theology and doctrine had to be rewritten and reconstructed to take into account that Christ did not, in fact, come back on October the 22nd, 1844. So that's just one historical example of uh, what we see. In 1981, I had the great uh, privilege to go to Israel and Egypt and Jordan and was able to go to Petra, which was unusual back in that day because it had been closed for many years. And if you know what Petra is, then it's a quite fascinating place there in Jordan. On the weekend of October the 3rd and 4th, 1981, I was in Cairo, Egypt. And they were blocking off streets. And all over the city, they were putting up posters of Anwar Sadat. Do you, how many of you know who Anwar Sadat is? You should know <laughs> if you know your history. He was the president of Egypt in 1981. And they were putting up posters because they were going to have on Tuesday, October 6th, a big military parade. And so I'm there the weekend, like the 3rd, 4th, and I think we actually left on Monday morning the 5th, and we were going to come back to the United States and uh, during the next day or so. And... Um, so they were putting up posters, blocking off streets. It was kind of an inconvenience for us when we were there. And um, on Tuesday, October 6th, they have this parade. And what happens to Anwar Sadat? Who knows what happened? Brad knows. He was assassinated. The soldiers that were marching along, all of a sudden, several of them ran to the podium. And they shoot Anwar Sadat, and he is assassinated on October the 6th on a Tuesday. I came back to, we actually thought our plane was going to be delayed because we were actually flying out that day, and we didn't know if we were going to have trouble getting out uh, because of all the sudden uh, conflict that was going on. The next week, I went to Raleigh, and I went, uh, I, I happened to be in Raleigh, and I stopped at a Christian bookstore, and on the shelf are these books, and they have Anwar Sadat's face on the front of them. And the book was about, it was explaining why Anwar Sadat was the Antichrist. And so, that didn't go over well. But that's the kind of thing that we see when we are trying to take current events and force them onto the pages of uh, the prophecy in Scripture or when we're trying to say, set dates. Some of you may remember 88 reasons why the, ap the rapture will happen in 1988. That was a very popular book. I think the guy's name was Whistnut. Uh, what is not so well known is he made a, less, a lesser uh, known publication in 1989 and again in 1993 and again in 1994. And after that, nobody paid any attention to 
of what he was saying about such things. You may remember Harold Camping in, um, in 2011, on May 21st, 2011, was supposed to be the day of the rapture. It, it was uh, redated to October when it didn't happen in May, and after that, uh, it pretty much fizzled out from people having any interest in what he had to say. You may not know this. You know what DEFCON is, don't you? The military term DEFCON. Things are at DEFCON 5, and if they get more serious, they're at DEFCON 4, DEFCON 3, DEFCON 2. Our military uses that as the state of, uh, uh, of the danger of conflict and war, and sometimes they'll, they'll change the number from 2 to 3. It's never been DEFCON 1. You can go on the Internet, and I don't suggest that you waste your time doing this, but you can go on the Internet right uh, today, and you can check the RAPCON. And that is the meter that is judging how likely it is that the rapture is imminent. And the uh, RAPCON is, by the way, at one, meaning that the rapture is imminent to happen just any time that we should be expecting at any time, which we should, but not for the reasons given on the RAPCON uh, website. And so I just mentioned that just to warn us all about uh, uh, what we see in our world. It's very popular to try to set dates, to try to take the events from yesterday's newspaper and to connect them in some way with uh, specific phrases or verses in prophecy. It is quite interesting. It can be fascinating. But it, I would suggest to you that there, we have no basis uh, in Scripture, uh, nor would our, our right methods of interpretation lead us to do such things. Now, I mentioned to you last time that uh, in about the year 1830, uh, a new teaching came on the scene which was called Darbyism. It, it developed around the year 1830. It was promoted by C.I. Schofield. Uh, later, uh, Lewis Perry Schaefer uh, became uh, a teacher uh, along these lines, and he founded Dallas Seminary, which we're all familiar with. If you read uh, books of theology uh, and follow those kind of things, you'll be familiar with Dallas Seminary. Uh, names like Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, or John Walford, Armageddon Oil and the Middle East Crisis, and many other books. Um, Charles Ryrie and the Ryrie Study Bible. I have a Ryrie Study Bible at home. Uh, Dwight Pentecost. These are the names that you may know. And more recently, Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series, which has been popular among Christians and among secular people as well. Uh, that series of books are all uh, things that come from this teaching, uh, dispensational teaching. At the age uh, of 19, while he was still a, a student at Trinity College in Dublin, uh, Darby came to believe that there must be a future dispensation in which God will literally fulfill his Old Testament promises to national Israel. That was the idea that he latched on to. He saw this as an undiscovered truth that had been lost in the generations following the, asp, uh, the uh, apostolic age. So during all the age from the apostles all the way up into his day, uh, this had been a lost truth or a, uh, 
Uh, it is now a rediscovered truth uh, about the literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecy in regards to national Israel. Uh, prior to Darby, Christian theologians uh, almost unanimously taught that the promises made to Israel had found their fulfillment in Christ and his church. And so from that one idea, that seed idea, all the sophistication and complexity uh, that we now know as dispensationalism in our day, uh, it, it came from uh, that, that beginning. And so the question that I want to ask uh, tonight and try to begin to answer is why are we not dispensationalists? Uh, we need to have a Berean spirit about this, and we should be able to explain well to you from the Scriptures why we don't uh, hold to that particular teaching. Now, let me tell you what the distinctives of dispensationalism are. And if I misstate something or I leave something out that's important, feel free to, to, uh, feel free to speak up and, and correct me about that. Uh, the, dis the distinctives are, of dispensationalism are as follows. There are distinct dispensationalists, dispensations that have two basic characteristics. One is that they have a beginning, uh, a definite beginning and a definite termination. And so there's this dispensation. It starts here, it ends here. The next one starts, ends, starts, ends, and they progress through time like that. The other the distinctive of dispensationalism is that each dispensation has its own distinctive method uh, of being accepted by God, its own distinctive method of salvation. Another distinctive of dispensationalism is that, is that there is a sharp distinction that is made between Israel and the church. You hear things said like uh, the two are never uh, confused in Scripture. They're never mixed together in Scripture. The Israel, Israel is here. The church is here. They don't meet. They don't have common grounds. That, uh, that idea has been tempered a little bit in just the recent decades in dispensational teaching. Another distinctive of dispensationalism is literal hermeneutic. And I want to talk about those three areas, the dispensations, the uh, distinction between Israel and the church and literal hermeneutics. So that's our three areas I would like to address in why we are not dispensationalists. Now, the distinct dispensations are, let me just write them down. You may remember these. The age of innocence, I guess I should say that. Conscience, government, promise, law, grace. And then the final one, kingdom, referring to the millennial kingdom that will be uh, after the church age. So those are the seven dispensations that you see in classic dispensationalism. Does that sound familiar to some of you, those terms? You probably were taught that. 
uh, if you've heard dispensational teaching. Now, each of these dispensations end in some way. Let me tell, tell you what they are just quickly. Innocence ends with the fall in the garden. Conscience comes to an end with the flood. Government comes to an end with the dispersion of Babel. You know, remember the Tower of Babel and God thwarts the plans of the people and he disperses the nations and, and changes their, their, language, their single language to a, a multitude of languages. Promise ends with the wilderness and the failure to enter Canaan. Law ends with the rejection of the Messiah. Grace ends with the rejection of the gospel that is yet future because we are in this, this dispensation now. And then the kingdom is going to end. The age of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom of Christ will end with rebellion. And so each covenant has uh, this particular ending. And so one comes to, be, to being and it comes to a, a firm conclusion by those events. Now there's also a way of salvation in each one. The test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Moral conscience in the next dispensation. The failure to scatter and fill the earth in the next dispensation. Dwelling in Egypt rather than dwelling in Canaan in the next dispensation. Breaking the law in the next dispensation. Rejecting the gospel in the next dispensation, the dispensation we're in now. And then in the future, in the kingdom, it's going to be a failure to obey. It will end in rebellion in the millennial kingdom. And so there's a definite beginning and a termination with each dispensation. So let me challenge that premise. Let me see what time. we got 10 minutes, maybe 11. So let me see if I can challenge that first premise, a definite beginning and termination. I would suggest that each covenant has abiding significance and comes to full flower in the new covenant. When the New Testament explains the new covenant to us, and we're, read, we're reading our New Testament scriptures, and it explains our salvation to us, it explains the new covenant to us as Christians, it does so in terms of of all the previous covenants. Adam was the covenant of works. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 because we're going to look at the scriptures to see these things. The covenant with Adam, which would be the age of innocence. Romans chapter 5. Let's look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and who was that one man? That was Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, who was the one to come? That he was a type of. It was the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what, what, this is what Paul was saying to us. He is saying that this covenant and Adam affects you personally and individually. 
that this covenant, far from being ended and its consequences ended, Adam comes right up to you personally, each one of us in this room personally, and we are in this number where it says death spread to all men. And his proof is, is that before it ever even was a law for men to be, that was recorded plainly for men to be judged by, even then people did what? They died. And so there was the consequences of what Adam did even before the law was given. And so it, it, it affects every individual person who will ever live until the end of the world. And it affects you in another way if you're a Christian. We are connected directly to this covenant and to Adam's representation uh, for, uh, of us to our harm. Adam represented us to our harm. But it is Christ, the antitype, the one that Adam was a type of, that fulfills this very covenant, the covenant of works from the garden. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfills this covenant to our benefit and salvation. Look down at verses 18 and 19 just to skip, and we could read a whole passage, but verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man, that is Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man, that is Christ's obedience, the many will, made, will be made righteous. And so what we have is we have this covenant reaching to us if we're not, whether we're Christians or not. It touches us, every one of us. And this covenant, if we're believers, touches us because our Lord Jesus Christ has kept the covenant of works. He has performed a, a righteous life in our place. And so that covenant, the first covenant, uh, touches us even today. What about Noah? Noah's covenant is the covenant of God's gospel patience. If you remember, when the, when the covenant is given, there is preservation of life, uh, is, 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 is lifted up uh, to the to the to the uh, to the help and aid of all the people living on the earth that's been destroyed in the flood. People were so violently wicked before the flood. God gives in this covenant uh, ba the basis for life to be preserved and to be protected. He gives no flood, meat to eat. Animals are going to be afraid of of man, uh, which preserves human life. Uh, there's going to be capital punishment. Uh, instituted. So all of these things are to promote life. And what is the reason for that? And by the way, don't those things affect you every day? Those very things affect us every day. They have not come to any, in any sense to an end. And why does he do that? Well, let's look in the scriptures here again. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 5. talking about scoffers, he says, they are deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And so he's talking about the flood, Noah's flood there. He says, by this same word, that is the word that brought about that destruction, by the same word, the heavens and earth that 
that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Skip down to verse 9. Why is this world, world being preserved for the day of fire? Why is, will there be a preservation uh, for uh, this age? It is because the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is because of the grace of God giving us a period of gospel patience in order for people to be saved. Verse 15. Verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Has the Lord ever been patient with you? That is the covenant with Noah uh, reaching down to you and your life. What about Abraham? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. What about the covenant with Abraham? Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. What about that covenant? Did it end? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 14. So then, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, let me point out a couple of things to you in that verse. One is that the blessing of Abraham is what comes to the Gentiles when the gospel is preached to them. What is it that they receive? It is the promise that was given to Abraham and the blessing of that covenant that comes to the Gentiles. But note the other thing that's connected to the promises and the blessings of Abraham and that covenant. It is that receiving the promised spirit through faith is connected with Abraham and his covenant. And so when we talk about being saved by faith, we're talking about the covenant that was given to Abraham. Then verse 3, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 3 and verse 29, we'll just cut to the end here. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. And so the covenant with Abraham uh, is what we enjoy when we become Christian people. Now, we are out of time. So let's stop and let's ask this question. We have any questions or comments about the covenant with Adam and how it continues, the covenant with Noah and how it continues, the covenant with Abraham and how it continues, or any other thing that we that we talked about tonight. Any questions? Any observations? Any comments? Any at all? If you pull out your Scofield Reference Bible, 
which some of you may not have any idea what that is. But when I was growing up, a Schofield Bible was like, 25 years later, a Ryrie study Bible. And if we come more to our time now, you might have a Reformation study Bible. <laughs> but it was, it was very popular and very, very common to see Schofield reference Bibles, which laid all of this out in detail. What's your question, Mike? I can see it on your face. I think in the beginning of the development of dispensationalism, one of the um, one of the really attractive ideas was we are going to literally um, interpret the Bible. There was a lot of uh, influence in the church towards liberalism, not believing that the scriptures were real. Or, you know, or, or infallible or reliable, Those, all that kind of thing was on the rise. And it was very attractive, the idea that we take the Bible dead serious. And a lot of the alternatives had become weak, uh, you know, in their teaching and, 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 and not firm in their commitment to the Scriptures. And it was a very attractive, I think, alternative to the decline of the day, kind of like the revival we've seen in the Southern Baptist Convention in the last 20 years. Uh, we've seen a return, uh, you know, to a commitment to the Word of God as being, uh, 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 you know, the infallible Word of God. And we've seen a lot of changes come about. I think the same, th the same I kind of uh, sentiment that drives that was at work when this view started to come on the scene because it was a view that took dead serious taking the Bible literally and being studying it carefully. And though I think they, they got off in a lot of wrong directions, and we'll see some of them why, I hope, while we're studying uh, in our study in the next weeks. Uh, but that, I think, was the attraction. That would be my, my assessment of why it was attractive. And still is attractive to a lot of people. I hope we're going to see in the next weeks that we take the Bible dead seriously and we, and we interpret it literally. <laughs> but that's a, that's a topic that will be coming up. So I hope that we, I hope that we see that that's exactly what we, we mean as well. Any other questions? Okay, if not, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I do uh, pray that you would help us uh, not just to have curiosity about these things, but that you would help us, Lord, to rejoice that as time has unfolded, you've, you have been pleased to bless this world with your covenant relationships that have grown richer and richer and fuller and fuller and that come to full flower uh, in the New Testament church and in the New Covenant. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to... Uh, to uh, to appreciate these things, to understand these things, and to, Lord, worship you and praise our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sum uh, of all the covenants brought uh, together uh, in uh, full flower uh, in his life 
and in his ministry. And we thank you for these things uh, in his name. Amen.